Hi, my name is Ethan Whitson, and welcome back to the Reimagining Intent podcast. On this episode, we interview Sean Izzard. Sean is a world-renowned photographer from Cronulla, Australia, and the founder of the Pool Collective. The Pool Collective defines themselves as a pool of interdisciplinary creative resources that link vision to expression across all mediums. Sean is well known for his commercial work with Subaru, Canon, MasterCard, Coca-Cola, Visa, and Samsung, to name a few. During his career, he has amassed numerous awards, has been named in the archive top 200 photographers worldwide four times. Sean has been quoted as one of Australia's most talented and respected photographers. You can find Sean online at seanizzard.com or at thepoolcollective.com. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sean Izzard. syndrome so it's like the the tall poppy goes up and it's gets lopped so it's the same height as everybody else hi welcome back to the reimagining intent podcast my name is ethan whitson and today we have sean is on the podcast sean is a world-renowned photographer from australia and also a two-time loser to me in ping pong the last week sean thanks for joining us no worries, eh? So, Sean, I was wondering if you could just start off and tell us how you got into photography and how your whole career started. Well, it's kind of... Uh, I, I was never really interested in photography at school. Like, I know a lot of people were at school and they would... You know, it was a really big hobby and stuff like that. For me, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So, I left school. All I knew that I didn't want to do was go to university. Like, in Australia, that's our version of your college, I guess. So I was just going to doss about and hang out with my mates who were going to university and they were all on holidays for three months. Now, my dad had different ideas. He says, no, you're not. If you don't know what you want to do, you're coming to work with me. So he worked with a publishing company. So that's a, a, a big stable of magazines that they published. Um, anything from lifestyle to sports to electronics, boating, cars a lot of stuff like that so yeah so I ended up there um, pretty much working three days a week in the storeroom which meant driving a forklift and stuff like that and a couple of days a week in the accounts department where I'd wear a like a suit and a tie and go to the bank and you know do that sort of stuff so that was a pretty interesting you know I got to see some different sides of the, of the business. Anyway, the, there was a dark room. There's a photographic department. They had a stable of photographers. So one time, one of the photographers had to go on leave. So the guy in the dark room had to go out and take his position. And I was asked to go into the dark room to cover that. So they gave me a crash course, picked up really quickly. And I think I was at the end of the tenure in the storeroom, I was about to get the punt, I think, because you can only stay enthusiastic in that job for so long. And they offered me a position as a cadet photographer. So that's, that was really the beginning um, of, of the photography. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, me and Ethan have a lot of in, uh, experience in the dark room. We took photography our last year. Um, for a lot of people, <laughs> photography kind of is like a hobby, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in high school, what else did you do besides photography? Like, talk about like your high school days, like what you thought of, like what were those like besides photography? Um, I did as little as possible. 
to be honest. I, I was really, I really did not have any idea what I wanted to do. And so I think it's just really difficult to knuckle down and study when you don't have that purpose at the end of it. So I looked, I, you know, I wasn't stupid. I, I did well, but I, I just sort of coasted. So I didn't, you know, I did, you know, regular level maths and I was good at English. Um, I did three unit modern history. Um, but yeah, I just didn't do any extra work and I just studied the night before exams and passed. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's pretty much, I, I longed for lunchtime where I could play handball. Mm -hmm. handball. Yeah. Was photography your first passion? Do you think true passion? Um, I no, I'd say sport. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I was, whilst I was going through school and, and all that sort of stuff, I was, I was good at sport. So I played soccer at a pretty high level. I played tennis at a high level. So that's, that's what excited me. Yeah. I think like a lot of our listeners, like they might have a passion, they might have something that they're super interested in. Um, I've wondered like, because if you find that passion, right. And you find it might be a hobby. Mm -hmm. How did you turn that hobby into some sort of profession, right? You said you got your start like with that break. Mm -hmm. but how did that break turn into an actual profession? I think because um, whilst I was in the dark room, it was like, you know, I was in there for a couple of years, for well, probably three years. And then I wasn't really doing anything very actively about getting out of the dark room. So, but in the meantime, I'd met some really good people who are, already out and about with their own, you know, doing their own thing, sort of freelancing as photographers. So they were an inspiration to me, I guess. So that was a motivation to to do something about where I was. So, you know, I think back in the day I'd done like a, a self-awareness kind of course as well. And so I got to see what was holding me back, how I was holding me back. And then I just decided one day to take the leap into freelance and that's literally just flying by the seat of your pants like you don't know where your next job's coming from you get a, a portfolio of, of pictures together and you go and basically hawk yourself to marketing departments you know how, how scared were you for that that's uh, yeah it was scary. pretty um it was pretty confronting you know because you you're literally setting yourself up for rejection not just once but you know 10 times a week how do so, you deal with rejection like that? Well, after a while, you just learn to understand that it's it's not rejection. You know, it's yeah. it's someone's opinion, and you either get you get work or you don't get work. You sometimes you might take on board what sort of people's feedback as in, in terms of what will help me get work. So you know, you, you've got to be able to discern what's useful feedback and what's not and i guess it depends on how much you respect the person that's giving you that information right listening to constructive criticism like that must be super like hard yeah yeah it starting is off. yeah it is exactly so but like i say i had some really good people around me plus i think it's important to um once once i got into it then you start to look at sort of some of the work of the masters and i'm talking about irving penn and richard avedon and uh Annie Leibovitz and these sorts of people and you can hold your work up against that and sort of that becomes your benchmark not like you're copying but it's like there's a certain level and I think even within the dark room I was able to 
see the difference between the work that the pros were doing and then compare that to what the editors would go and shoot on the weekend and they'd give me their film, I'd process it, the exposures are all over the place, the compositions, you know, shite. Mm-hmm. Where in the pros, it's like all, you know, perfectly uniform composition, beautiful, simple images, strong, you know. So that's, I learnt, I learnt that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered the question there. But that's, that's just really an incredible way to perfect your craft. And like a lot of people are just, especially our generation, are, they just want instant gratification. They want it really bad. And it's, I think it's really cool that you spent like three years in the dark room learning from other people and really, really perfecting your craft. I know you told me one time, like a couple of your early jobs were in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I guess, yeah, one of the first freelance gigs that I got was shooting for rugby league magazine rugby league's a, a big football code in australia um so yeah and that was a game that i loved as well so that was cool so you get to run up and down the sideline and and shoot action so that you get a long lens and um shooting action stuff and then you'd be in the dressing room af- after the game and you know and then you go back to the office after that and process the film print it and then it would go to publication that night so yeah that was that was a, a few years that I shot that for, quite a few years, and that was pretty much my rent covered. Mm-hmm. So everything else that I got was sort of beer and Skittles, I suppose. <laughs> beer and Skittles. Sounds <laughs> like um, a good diet. <laughs> <laughs> I know you told me a story about the rugby player you met when you took a picture of him through the backs of the people. Is that mm. the same time when you were shooting for yeah. Rugby League magazine? Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, well, I was... Um, I was photographing was a, like a preliminary semi-final, so two games before the grand final. And um, I was photographing the team that I follow, which is the Canary Bulldogs, and they were getting smashed, and it was a rainy day, it was muddy. And I took a picture of their captain, who's a guy called Steve Mortimer, um, who's like quite a legend of the game now. Um, and he was castigating his team, you know, yelling at them behind the try line because they'd just been scored against. So I did a shot between a couple of shoulders of him, you know, in action, you know, like yelling at his team and he's covered in mud and stuff. And the next week they went out and they won their semi-final, which got them to go through to the grand final. And the story came out that he'd used, I say the photograph that I took ended up on the cover of the magazine. Mm -hmm. So the story came out that he'd used that photograph as inspiration and motivation for him and the team to get up the following week. So there's a little article saying, you know, this picture by ace young photographer, Sean Izzard, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that was a really cool thing. And then the following week was the grand final and I was there to photograph that. So in the meantime, I went and got a print of that shot. Like a, well, it's called a Cibachrome, like a 16 by 12 inch print. Had it in a box with me, took it to the ground. So end up, they, they lost that grand final. But I went into the dressing room after the game and I went up to Steve Mortimer and he'd been a bit of a hero of mine because he started in 77 and I was like in year seven. I was like 12 at that point. So I'd followed his career. And I said, um, I said, Steve, I said, um, you've given me so much over the years and um, I'd just really like to give you this. And I just handed him the box and he opened it and he was like, wow, he's really blown away and said, thank you. And I was like, no worries and turned around and walked out. That's incredible. I mean, I just think, like, about how many photographers are at, like, the World Cup or in, like, 
you just said the rugby league final like i know there's what are you looking for when you get a shot like that like what how do you separate yourself among those numerous photographers to get like such a great shot like that yeah i guess it's just instinct in a way like i think you you, to have an understanding of the game really helps so you can anticipate what's going to happen um it's yeah you don't want to be standing there and getting exactly the same shot as everybody else on you know and there's there's guys who are far better than me i was quite young um so i wasn't really um, you know setting any new standards back then but yeah it was just there wasn't much else going on at the time but i could see you know that kind of emotion going on behind the try line and that's what drew me to to take that picture that's incredible. Would you say that's when you, I was talking to you earlier, you think that's one of your brightest moments as a photographer in your career? Oh, well... Or at it, least favorite, personally favorite. Personally favorite, for sure. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff since then. I've met the Dalai Lama and, and photographed him. Um, but from a personal point of view, um, it to meet you like a, a hero of, of yours from, from childhood, um, that was that was pretty cool. And he was a good, and he's a great bloke as well, which helps. Totally. Is it a goal of yours to try and impact others' lives when you're photographing people? Uh, I, that's not really up to me. I like to I like to portray people as authentically as I can, mm-hmm. and I think that probably has the best chance of impacting somebody else that that looks at the pictures. And these days, that's what I'm employed to do more than anything is to shoot people in that way because it's advertising um it's changed a lot it used to be far more conceptual and it used to be i guess a lot more uh you know glossy in its in the way that that it was um shown you know it it was unreal it was this kind of aspirational thing that people that looked amazing in amazing places and this and that and the other. I think these days it's a lot more, They people want to be seeing reality. It still needs to be a little bit aspirational, but they want to be able to see themselves in a situation. And that's what I'm, which is great for me because that's what I love to do. That's what's really, for me at least, stood out for your work is I look at like for Instagram or all these social media platforms, for example, and everyone has these fake pictures of themselves. Like, it's their best points of their life. They're trying to show off their best self. And you look at Sean's website, and, like, there's these self-portraits and Storm. And it's really beautiful, and I think there's just something to that that's realistic and authentic that not a lot of other people get when they photograph people, which I think is really cool. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think if you're talking about, you know, those social media platforms, then that's... uh yeah, that's rife with um, selfies and yeah, <laughs> and I, I, and I love I actually love to go to tourist um, attractions and photograph people photographing themselves in front of the attraction. Um, yeah, that, that yeah, I really that I really love to do that. Am I am I wrong to say that like every photographer has their own different style and I like just like Ethan said like you have sort of like a realistic style like but i'd love to hear from you what what are some words that you describe your own style photography style as um i'd say observational like i I am employed to construct stuff but i but i try to 
keep that observational. So I don't, I don't like to overly direct people in, in what to do. Um, I guess more photojournalistic and that's how, that's where I started, like back in those early days. So it's kind of come full circle now that that's, I've gone through that point where I was doing a lot of the, the composite work and creating these ads. Um, but now it's a lot more, yeah, just everything is pretty much as it, everything's coming out of the camera as it was. You might give it a bit of a grade, but I'm not swapping heads and doing all these other things. And, um, yeah, so I guess in terms of my style, it's, it's, style's a funny word, but I think it's nobody, nobody can see the way that I see. So it's, you could, you could be having two guys side by side photographing the same thing and you might get completely different results just because of, you know, right, I'm bringing, see reality, you know, exactly. You, that's what I'm, I'm bringing my whole past and everything else to it. Yeah. How did you get that style? Was there an inspiration you had or an event that led you to getting that kind of style of photography? Um, I think it's more, that's how I started. So, and that's what I was inspired by because I was working in editorial and that, you know, that is a, a much looser way to, to shoot. Plus, you know, you know, but I still love portraits, you know, when you look at the Avedon stuff and that's very clean just against like a white backdrop or something like that. So that's just really heroing the person. Um, so yeah, I just think that that's just turned out to be how I, how, what I like to look at. So that's kind of now what I like to show. Mm -hmm. How has your career evolved after that rugby league shoot? I know right now you own a, your own business called the pool collective, which we can get into later. But what happened after the rugby league shoot that helped you get to where you are today? Well, it was just a steady progression of, you know. Well, I was actually, back in those days, I was doing a lot of what's called below the line, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, was just, which is the sort of stuff that's not high tier advertising work. It was more, it, it's PR stuff, going to events, photographing people. And I was really got to the point where I was not enjoying that anymore. So Amanda, who was then my girlfriend, now my wife, we went on an overseas trip. So we went, we came here first, actually. And then we went to the UK. And that was like a time out. So we ended up being away overseas for 18 months, two years kind of thing. Okay. And I, and I, did, I did work. I, I did a few photographic jobs, but essentially I was just, I went and worked in bars building sites, restaurants as a waiter. So and that were sorts of things that I would never have done at home. Um, Amanda, who was had just finished a degree in architecture, got a job in a, an architectural firm. So she was kind of making the good money and I was <laughs> just sort of, you know, mucking around really. But it was a fantastic experience for me because I got to become far more resourceful. Like by, ta by taking on these jobs that I wouldn't have even thought about doing at home and actually turning out to be good at them really bolstered my self-confidence I think right like step would it be wrong to say like you stepped out of your comfort zone and like did things that challenged you and tried new things that like I mean it worked out like you found more about yourself found out more about yourself absolutely it was there's an ad you know there's a sign on the on the restaurant window saying you know waiter wanted or whatever it's like okay, well, I've never done this before. So you walk in the door and you apply for the job and you get a go. And then 
you know, you pick it up and then turn out to be, yeah, really good at it. So that, yeah, that's a real fillip for your confidence, like, like you said. And then on the way home, we had like three months through Southeast Asia where I had my camera with me again and shot a whole bunch of stuff. And so when I got back, my, my two best friends had started a company together in, in, um, like, and they're in the advertising world. And that's when I decided, well, I decided on the way home that that's what I was now going to do. I was going to go for the top kind of echelon of advertising photography. And, um, and that's, that's when I started. Yeah. Advertising super interesting to me, at least, because I'm, I'm majoring in business. Marketing super interesting to me. And I'm always interested by buyer's motivations and people's motivations. And that's kind of hard to capture, I feel like, in just a picture, for me at least, like just as an outside eye. Yeah. How do you go about that when you're trying to – because most of the advertising stuff is getting people to buy a product, getting people to do something – like that they normally wouldn't do. How do you f- f- photograph that? Generally, there's you know there's a the, there's got to be an idea behind the picture in the first place, like the campaign. If if somebody's got a certain product that they want to sell, there's there's got to be some kind of hook into that. And an advertising agency will come in at that point and they'll, and they'll create uh, an idea, and that might that might sort of live in a headline. And then there might be an image. And I, I would always try to bring a quirkiness, I suppose, to that image. Something that makes it a bit memorable and not just wallpaper, you know. So if you're flicking through a magazine, there aren't as many magazines these days, but it's, you know, you want them to stop for a moment and engage with the picture. So I think that's that's key. So I've always tried to embellish the story with as much detail as I can to keep people engaged and, and noticing new stuff. Yeah, and I think like that realistic, like you just said, like embellish, but we we just had a conversation downstairs about you're about to do a project for the Red Cross and you're trying to make it more realistic while also embellishing it. How do you walk that balance of embellishing and making it you know, seem good and greater than it might be, but yeah. also keeping it realistic? And authentic too. Well, I guess to start with, you know, we're shooting real people in in this new campaign, um, and that that's 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 a double sided thing because real people can be really nervous and unsure of how to be, and um, which is fine. But I think the underlying or the overarching uh, th- the thing I take with me to every job is it's it's still a photograph, and for that. There's, there's the, you know, it still comes down to composition, lighting, you know, these basic tenets of photography. And that's, and that's what creates an engaging picture, you know. So all things aside, that's what I fall back on. And that just kind of seems like you've simplified creativity, which is really interesting to me because you, you have such a creative business and you have such a creative photography style but I f- feel like just simplicity is the key root of that. I'm a pretty simple bloke. You are. <laughs> I-, I went to Australia and visited Sean one time, and I think we watched cricket for a whole week in a row and sat on the couch. It was a really good time. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sean, I want to get into your business you own now. Um, it's called The Pool Collective. I was wondering if you could tell everyone about that. Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, as as professional photographers, a lot, a lot of the time you, you kind of, it's a fairly isolated existence because 
people don't like to give away too much about how they do things. They don't like to give away too much about who their clients are. They, they might be afraid that they're going to lose them or something like that. So it's it could become a pretty solitary, you know, you can be like a, a shag on a rock sitting in your studio sometimes. So, But I always knew that the where the juice is is in sharing and and you know your experiences and all that sort of stuff and and also showing each other your work your personal work especially so that you know that's actually really inspiring and you can get some great feedback too from these people that you know you that you admire or even just helping younger guys come through so for me the the pool collective was born out of well a mate of mine great mate of mine simon who was right there at the beginning as a photographer and he was based in New York and he was really unhappy with his representation in Australia at the time. And he said, you should start up a production company. And I was like, well, that sounds hard. <laughs> and then I realized like, like, I've got the studio. I had the premise. There were already a couple of people working out of the studio. There was a full-time producer there. And I thought, well, I've already got all the pieces. I just need to kind of name it now and start the business and we can, we can go from there. So I brought to that the philosophy of sharing um motivating inspiring and creating so we pull our resources ideas finance and we create vehicles for the members the artists which is directors photographers to publish or show their personal work and that in turn becomes the promotion promotional material so rather than doing running an ad or something we'll have an exhibition right. so that in turn yeah that becomes our marketing and that's that's what gets us all on the map and kind of keeps the whole organization going the the guys the guys and girls also are active in promoting their own pushing their own barrows so to speak which and then in turn also pushes pull Right. So as an organism, that's kind of how it, how, it, how it rolls. Yeah, elevating yourself as well as the pool, like that seems like a very big theme. Can you give like an example of how you guys all work together? Like just cause for me trying to imagine like, so you have a photographer and then you have someone else. What, what's the whole process of like when you guys say we're working all together for a certain project? What does that look like? Well, I suppose that's more so when we decide to have like a joint exhibition okay. or something like that. and. And we've done, we've done projects in the past. We 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 made a book called Blow Up, and so that was um, everybody um, went and shot a certain project for that, and we had a designer come on board to um, lay out this book, and it turned out to be all these different sizes pages within the one publication, and it was it was pretty crazy. It won some awards in London and stuff like that. But that's really when we come together and we talk about what we what we're doing. We're showing people what we're up to, um, getting that sort of feedback. Um, I think everyone's gen genuinely interested in what they're up to. If someone gets a bit quiet, you know, the you, it's like that's when I say quiet, I mean mm -hmm. not busy. Yeah. Then we, you know, we always make a point of having a chat and trying to help each other and find out what they could else they could be doing and whatnot it's all very cyclical anyway so i think that's that's the kind of thing it's um 
yeah, we're just genuinely interested and care about each other. That's cool. That goes, I mean, that talks about your culture, right? Like you guys have created a culture within your business, which I think is super hard for like a lot of people to do. Not, yeah, being a start, like startup business and creating that culture um, of collaboration and creativity. Do you guys have like certain things you like? I you mentioned those four words. Like, are those the four words you guys pride yourself on, or what? Talk about your culture within the Pool Collective. Um, well, I, yeah, I think it started from the beginning because it, it most traditionally this sort of company is run by uh, probably a. Uh, might be a marketing person or a production person who puts together a stable of photographers um, and then so it's run from that that position from the top and the the top few photographers might be busy all the time the ones at the bottom not so much um, somebody might ring up with a brief for for work and so but so the the management might then send two or three portfolios from their stable but I might have been the one that got they were asked for, but I might send a whole bunch of others anyway. Mm-hmm. So those sorts of things, I've been in those companies and didn't like. So we pay, we basically started pool using what works and dropping what doesn't work. So it was very much run from the point of view of looking after the, the artists, photographers and, and directors, as opposed to the other way around. So it's kind of the lunatics running the asylum, I suppose. So <laughs> that's that's not necessarily how it rolls now. We've got really strong people at the top, but it's but it still is very much focused on the artists. So nobody gets brought in unless everybody says, Yep, we're happy for that person to come in. It's so it's we don't overlap much either. Like with the artists, it's sometimes in these other companies you might get three or four people that are kind of the same. We make sure that we've got a really good delineation between people's styles. Like there might be three or four of us that shoot people, but we're all very different. You talked earlier uh, earlier about kind of the stigma of collaboration in the photography world. How did you overcome that when you started the Pool Collective? And were there issues kind of getting people to join the pool at the beginning because people are scared of collaboration in the industry? Um, not really. I mean, I think once people experience it, it's, it's fantastic, you know, they, they, and if, and if you didn't want to do that, then you weren't involved, you weren't asked to be involved or you weren't, or you're kicked out. Yeah. Um, so we haven't really had to kick anybody out. It's, you know, everybody really digs the setup and the culture, as you mentioned. So it's, it's it's always you know it's never simple it's there's always issues just because of the nature of the of the business you know it is up and down and so yeah you've just got to try and keep everybody moving and everybody up you know how do you kind of keep that creative environment i've been to your office before and it's incredible i know you originally owned the first house it was in and then there's a ho- there's a lot that backs up to it and you bought that and then connected the two so it's kind of a house a pool in the middle kind of backyard area and then another house. And then you walk in and it still kind of looks like a house and there's bedrooms and everything. And you, but there's people in every room working on Macs and it's really like a relaxed culture, but it just seems bursting with creativity. Can you kind of, do you have a way to promote creativity or how do you go about that? 
Yeah, well, I guess that building out the back that you mentioned is a studio and we built that. That's a photographic studio. Um, the bedrooms that you alluded to are now, they're all offices. So, And even the, the, that lounge area down the bottom, all that furniture has been stripped out now and that's been replaced by workstations. So it's probably a little less homey yeah. feeling now than it was when you saw it. Um, but no, it's just a really... It's a creative business to start with. So I don't think it's difficult to, to maintain that that creativity. And the staff that we have there are really fantastic. You know, they're really good at what they do. Um, and yeah, they, they're, they're really important in, in how we get work. And, you know, for each photographer or each artist, they have to work really hard at staying relevant as well, especially those of us, you know, a bit older. You, you know, it's, it's a, it can be a young person's game, you know, and especially when you look at the advent of social media these days and just how much visual information there is, um, it's, a, it's a very saturated market. So you just need to be able to separate yourself from that. Yeah. I want to go back into your staff. Like you said, you have, there are a couple old people. Um, I don't know if you consider yourself old, but... Uh... I was talking about myself. <laughs> yeah. um, I was calling him old when we were playing ping pong the other night. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was reading one of your interviews, and you actually mentioned, you know, you don't have, like, a lot of young photographers that come up and ask to collaborate with you. Do you guys have a lot of young photographers within the Pool Collective? And if not, or do you have them? Yeah, we have... Um... We have, well, what I would consider young, at least four at the moment of the of the eight, and a couple of them used to assist used to assist me back in the day. So they've shown enough. Well, I guess going back eight years, seven eight years, that you know I asked them to to come on board. Um, Danny, he was there from the beginning. Um, Chris, he's come on board you know, for about the last seven years. So, and he's killing it now. He's directing and doing all sorts of stuff. So he's, he's, that's been, that's been great. Yeah. I can only imagine just being in a work environment like that at such a young age. Like, do you wish you had had that at a young age or like, are you kind of happy that it, like, as you progressed as a photographer, you finally came to that? Like, I feel like these kids or however old they are are going to be very like far along in their, photography career yeah well they're probably in their 30s by now okay. you know so it, but it, but quite often you'll be assisting until you're well into your 20s um so yeah but i, I wouldn't change anything mm-hmm. you know i think it's you know I, I wouldn't i wouldn't know now you know what i do unless i had been had what i had i don't i don't that's why i'm not i mean i have to i have kids now and i'm not so worried about what they're doing at school or I mean, they're finished school, they're in college now and stuff or out working. But I think I'm a big believer in, um, I think there's that, there is an element of fate and there's an element of, you know, you'll find yourself eventually. And that's, I'm a big believer in, in that. And I think, well, I guess what helped me was my competitive nature as well, playing sport and, once I, once I got into the the business world was that comp- that competitiveness really came through and you know when you are competing against so many other people in that freelance world that that really drives you and gets you up in the morning 
I know you talked about your dad earlier in the interview. Was there ever an element where you wanted to put, I know you said you pushed back against him originally. Did that kind of fuel you too when he was like, you know, you're not going to do this. You got to go to school or come work for me. And then you went off and became a photographer. Were you really trying to prove him wrong or did that not really affect your journey, would you say? Um, well, interestingly enough, I think I proved him right because unbeknownst to me, he'd given me a camera when I was, well, he, he gave me his camera to borrow when I was 12 or something. And I went and took these pictures. He took the film to work and got them processed and printed, brought them home. And he said that they were far better than anything he could have ever shot. So he, he, he tells me that he could see then that I had an eye. So, yeah, so he kind of shepherded me in a way into this, into this area. And so, you know, I, I, I might think that it was a, it was lucky that I turned out to be good at it, but maybe that was part of his master plan. <laughs> yeah, that, that's incredible. And you never know what's going to happen. I like how you, you kind of say it all work out. It all falls into place. And I think especially with hard work, things seem to find work themselves out and untangle themselves. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the pool grant. Mm -hmm. I know that's pretty important to you and the pool collective in general. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a figure that's just gone up this year to $15,000 that we give to an emerging photographer or these days it's the photography and the, see the, the motion are kind of a lot more intertwined because content is such a big thing. Um, so we, we are a lot more involved in creating like TV commercials and online content and stuff in the motion world. So that opens up the grant to, to emerging artists that can experiment in, in both those fields. Um, yeah, but essentially it is $10,000 cash and then at least $5,000 worth of um, mentors, mentoring, plus we create um, an exhibition of their work at the end of the 12 months. Um, yeah, so ba it's basically a 12-month program where people submit we get thousands of submissions. We all separately go away and get our top five. We whittle that down to like a top three. And then quite often we'll bring in um, an independent judge, like somebody that's very renowned in, in the in the art world. And they'll choose not we don't we don't like to call them the winner, we call them the recipient. <laughs> um so so yeah, then they have it's a written application so they they show us what the project's going to be and it could be documenting um you know some kind of you know something that's happening in, in another part of the world it could be tracing their family history it could be a political thing it could be um you know single mothers you know there's all sorts of different stuff that it could be um that it could be, you know, an Aboriginal story in Australia. Um, but it's, it's always something that is relevant or pertinent. Um, and yeah, in the 12 months later, they, they bring back the work. And we, of course, we have a lot of yeah. input in that time. And um, they have a show. Yeah. When you're looking at that application and all the applicant, what are you looking for yourself within the, from those artists? Um, well, I'm looking, well, firstly, there, there is that, the relevance and, you know, what is what they're trying to say, something that I think that's important. Um, is it going to look cool? You know, for, I think that's, 
that's definitely you know that and because we also asked them to submit uh some of their work photography work so it's we're not just sort of giving it to the best writer um it does need to be great photography at the end of the day so but yeah originality i think is a big one something that's you know we haven't really seen before and something that's not kind of copying or, or emulating what we awarded last year or the year before if you're going to enter you should do your research and find out who's, who's won before yeah. and, and what they've done and because we're probably not going to award that same thing again who who has been like the, what was like last year's project like what do you remember last year's project is a combination it's a couple of people um who who are submitting both still and motion pieces okay um that's probably the i haven't had as much involvement in in last year's the year before was um i was one of the mentors and um that work was based on um people held in detention off australia people that try to come into the country and they're sent to a detention center and there's a always kind of pretty awful stories but rather than photographing that in a graphic way she represented it as a whole like there was like a shot of a coat hanger hand, hanging in an empty room or you know because that person had to be kicked out you know at a moment's notice and yeah, so there's all these little captions that went with her images but they were really conceptual and less literal so that was cool yeah, that's like a picture is worth a thousand words kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd like it just an original way of looking at a subject that everybody knows about. Yeah. I want to step away from photography for a moment. And I have just kind of a out-of-the-box question to ask you. As an Australian, and I don't even know if I want to talk about like our current administration and government or whatnot, what is your view on America just in general as an Australian? I know you spent a lot of time here too, so it might be a little biased, but yeah, I, I, I really love America. I, I, I haven't, I don't, honestly, I don't think I've met an American I didn't like. Um, you guys are all really friendly, and because it does help that I come into a family here that, um, you know, are really great, have a great bunch of friends, and and that sort of thing. But I. I think just generally out and about, you know, I go, we go to bars and meet new people and I, you, you're very polite and <laughs> courteous. Um, Sean doesn't want to get attacked by any Americans. <laughs> no, no, I, I I'm really holding something to his head right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's something, no, there's a lot of respect. And I think just you, you can watch the way that you guys interact, you know, and I get called sir. <laughs> that's pretty amazing um but i think genuinely it's just it's a really it's a really great place i'm not it's a it's a very broad stroke i know but it's um that's that's kind of what i think and and sure there's there's issues with with the government and but we have the same kind of stuff at home yeah that's a great point i was wondering you you were telling me kind of how you guys are much you guys are really educated on american history and for those who didn't know, Sean won trivia night a couple nights ago. He's very educated, and also European history. What is it like being isolated in Australia and kind of feeling the need to educate yourself on other world history? Yeah, you know, I guess the, you know that is 
Well, one of the downfalls of our um, history, well, not of our history, of, of our education system is we don't really learn a lot about the Indigenous history. So it's been focused a lot on, I guess, what is perceived as the beginning of our country, you know, back in the late 1700s and then the ensuing world wars and all that sort of stuff, which is where we're involved with America. And obviously we're still a colony of England. So most of our history is steeped around that, but it does ignore the fact that the Aborigines were around for yeah, you know, 60,000 years. Exactly like our Native American history, I would say, for America. You know, there's yeah. a lot of similarities between that. You get but, swept under the rug. Yeah, but, you know, it, it, that's, I think it's being redressed slowly. Um, apart from that, I think, yeah, the isolation is a, is a good point. We do feel like we need to know a lot more about what's happening overseas. Um, our news feed is filled with events from overseas where you come here and there's not one mention of anything that's happening in another country unless it's Trump in visiting the Queen or something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you possibly talk to about like the steps someone goes through in the education system? And uh, I was surprised when I went to Australia too. Like I think there's a stigma around like construction workers and some jobs here when you go right out of high school and you be a construction worker here. They're like, oh, that, that it's kind of looked down upon. In Australia, the construction workers are making some of the best pay out there. Could you maybe talk about the process of going to high school, going to university or not going to university? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, it's we have primary school here, which is pretty similar to you guys. I think you come out at age 11 or 12 or something, then you go into high school. We don't split our high school from junior to senior. We just have high school. Back when I went to school, it was quite common for people to leave in year 10. So that's like four years of high school. And they're the ones that would go and do the trades. So you, I've got mates that went and did building and, and that sort of stuff. And I'd still be at school and they'd just bought their first house kind of thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, not, you know, not, not long after. So, yeah, so they, yeah, there, there was certainly was no, that wasn't frowned upon. But I guess it was probably the more academic people that would stay on that did have that did want to go to university and f further their education that way these days it's a lot less common for people to leave in year 10 it's almost expected now that you would go through which is kind of a shame because a lot of people really shouldn't stay at school and they kind of cause trouble for the ones that want to be there that's my opinion but I, and i've seen that happen um so yeah, so then, it, then it's kind of the, the university degrees or whatnot. Yeah. But besides like the education world and like the labor force a little bit, what are some other major cultural differences like you see with between the US and Australia? I think that the US has a has a a lot of confidence. You know, it's <laughs> inherent in in who you guys are. You know, there's a lot Australians are far far less likely to stand up and and be loud i think there's a there's kind of a especially in politics there's a real apathy um people might not be happy that they're but they're really not willing to do much about it um if you if you are seen to be really su successful in australia and and you tell people how successful you are 
there's something called the tall poppy syndrome. So it's like the, the tall poppy goes up and it gets lopped. So it's the same height as everybody else. That's, that's kind of a thing in Australia. I think that's becoming less so. Australians are, are very laid back, I guess, in that way. And as opposed to, you know, I think Americans can be, yeah, just a lot more intense isn't the right word, but I think confident is certainly something. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, that, that to me would be the main difference. Yeah, I mean, when I went to Australia, I, I, like I said, we watched cricket for a week, and then I went to your office, and Sean does work very hard for those <laughs> listening, but the one day I did go to his office, he was, he had his shirt off, and he was cleaning the pool <laughs> at the pool collective, and it was kind of, it was pretty funny to see, but um, I feel like sometimes in America, there's just more, I don't know if it's ego-driven, but there's just more of a drive to kind of prove yourself, and I feel like people are scared to fail and they're scared to look bad and sometimes they're scared to relax and there's there's just this culture building of people that everyone has to work hard and everyone has to prove everyone else wrong about everything and I think that can be really unhealthy for you. And I think a lot of that is fueled by social media because everyone really knows what everyone is doing. But and it can be a, it can I would also dangerous. say like there's also like there's that, but there's also the side to where people will not like deviate from a path um because they're gonna go on the like the beaten path like there's it's really hard to go off the beaten path and it sounds like in australia there's not like that one path like you said in education um that like everyone goes to this everyone does this in high school and in america it feels like everyone goes to middle school everyone goes to high school at least and then like the expectation is you go to college Mm -hmm. is there a do you notice that difference too um i think well, you guys have got a much bigger population. What? Are, how many have you got? Like 350 million. 350 million. Yeah, We're at 24 million. Yeah. So good. we, there's just far less competition, really. For I think for you guys, you really need to uh, have a voice to get somewhere. You know. So I think that's that's maybe where you become a little louder and a bit more brash, you know, whereas Australians, we, but it's also a lifestyle thing. You know, most Australians live on the coast, you know, the, they value their time off, they're in the surf, they're, you know, it, it's really, it, it's, a, it's a different way of living, you know, you compare, you know, I mean, New York's not a great example, it's the, <laughs> it's the most mental city, you know, in, in the world, um, in a good way. But or, it's, or in a bad way, depending on how you look on it. Yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that a, a lot of a lot of it comes from, and and also Australians. You know, we we came from convict stock, you know. So mostly, so there's a lot of um, that we don't really like authority very much, and there's that this kind of no one really wants to toe the line. So I think that's that's a quite a big difference in culture yeah how is living by the ocean have you lived by the ocean your whole entire life pretty much on the coast um well i wasn't born near the ocean i was born kind of you know not inland inland but i was like west west sydney Uh so but yeah we've lived near the water since i was yeah like since i was about uh nine eight nine 
Yeah, I've heard stories, and I'm about to butcher the pronunciation on this, but you lived in Wollongong, and Amanda, your wife, lived in Cronulla, and you guys used to, like, kayak back and forth every day to see each other. I lived in Bundina. Bundina, ah. Yeah, yeah, Bundina, and she was in Cronulla. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that one hurt. Yeah, you did butcher it. Yeah, (laughs) I just butchered the whole word, but how is, like, that kind of lifestyle, like... Obviously, I lived in and I live in a landlocked state in Colorado. But how, like, oh, I'm gonna just go kayak across the bay to go see my girlfriend, or how's living by the ocean kind of impacted your life, and what kind of lifestyle does that create? Um, well, I love nothing more, even if I'm not in the water, just to be walking by the water, and it's just you know with the dogs or whatever. And I start my day every day in that way, and I, I think it's just a great almost meditative you know in that you can just sort of just being in nature I think full stop and I think you get the same thing here walking in the mountains skiing or with all that sort of stuff I think that's that's Amanda my wife and and myself really love that and that's a really grounding that's a really grounding thing I mean nothing is more important than that yeah I my friend I have a friend who lives in Santa Cruz and she has hit hard on me, like the blue mind. And I don't know if you've heard about, like read that book. It's just like, if you're around water and you're living with water, you're just like a happier person in general. Uh-huh. Um, but I, so you start your day when you walk off um, on the beach with your dogs. What, what's the rest of your day look like? Can you give us an everyday routine of Sean? Well, it's different every day. If, if I'm, if I'm shooting, I quite often won't get that walk because I'll be up at, you know, four or five or whatever it is to to get on location on time if we're shooting outside then quite often it's for the light so you know you really want to be there for sunrise and not like it's a sunrise shot but it's that's the golden hour of light um or if i'm not shooting then i'll do that walk and then it's a matter of checking in making phone calls it's a lot of networking still um keeping up your contacts, checking in with the office and, and seeing what's happening. I'm pretty lucky. I can have some pretty cruisy days and, um, and, and spend time at home. I've got an office at home as well. Um, so, yeah, that's the – or, or you might be away on location on a two-week shoot. So that's, that's different again. That's sort of early starts, day after day after day and long days, and that can be pretty – pretty intense a lot of unknown (laughs) absolutely that's that's the beauty of the job too it's like i don't know what there's always going to be issues there's always going to be problems but part of being well part of what i do is being able to solve problems yeah how does networking kind of affect your job and making relationships with others it's paramount you know, it's without that. I mean, I'd I'd be forgotten in a second. It's that competitive that there's always new people, you know, presenting work. So it's um yeah, it's it's important for me in in staying relevant. And I guess to do that, I've got to keep recreating myself. So it's I've got to find new ways of showing what I do or or moving into different areas. Um, it's, but yeah, I, I've, I've built up a big network of contacts over 30 years and it's important to, to maintain those. And also there's lots of new people coming through, younger people in marketing or in advertising. And so to 
get your work in front of them is is really important it's definitely a great way to kind of separate yourself from others and obviously a lot of people well the saying goes it's not what you know it's who you know and knowing a lot of people can definitely help um i want to ask you too it's also i'll just chime in it's about not being a dick oh totally yeah (laughs) yeah be a nice person like yeah well i think you know there's that's it's easily overlooked but i think that's that's pretty important yeah yeah um I want to ask you, we kind of live in an interesting time and you have too, where I think half your career has been before what we'd call like the technology age or whatever you want to call it and the boom of social media and perhaps your second career, half of your career will be after that. What has it been like to kind of adapt to social media? And you said the market, it's just kind of, I don't know if you'd call it toxic, but there's just so much media out there and Mm -hmm. it's just infatuated with so many pictures and what has it been like going through the technology age well i must admit i was drag kicking and screaming from um analog into digital um i loved my film cameras and i loved that way to shoot but it just became the process where clients would just wanted to see what i'd shot like now which is what digital allows because you can i can be shooting i can be tethered to a laptop computer and they can see what i've just shot you know straight away um, we try to temper that by not shooting tethered. I shoot to a card and I feed it to my digital operator who then uploads so we can shoot in bursts without having interruptions all the time. And then we can go and review what we've just done. In terms of social media um, and I guess the proliferation of or the saturation of imagery that's out there, um, thankfully a lot of it is still really shit. Yeah. So it's that does allow you to separate yourself, you know. So uh, I'm 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 pretty. I, I use social media pretty sparingly. I'm not on Facebook very much. Um, Instagram, I'll post. I don't know, maybe once a week or something. It's probably I don't have a strong Instagram game, um, and that's and that may not be good. I don't know. It's. I guess it is hard to to change someone's spots, but that's why I've got young people working for me as well who can tell me that I need to up it. Um, So a lot of the stuff that I post on Instagram is stuff that I've shot on my phone that I see around, but I'm thinking maybe I should make a bit more of a push on posting stuff that I've shot more seriously and kind of, I don't know, create a bit of a... uh, try to concentrate on creating a bit more of a following... For, for a young photographer who's growing up in this age of social media and all that stuff, what advice would you give to them? Well, I think um, it's, well, you've just really got to shoot what you love to shoot um, and preferably not selfies. But I mean, I mean, selfie, I mean, that's, that's something I guess you're just mucking around with on your phone. But if, if you, if you're shooting, you know, you're shooting, with a proper camera and you just, I, I just think you just got to shoot what you see. I, I'm a big advocate of photographing the world that's in front of me. And that includes, you know, family and, and this and that. And that's, and I guess the more you shoot, the more you're going to develop your eye, your, your eyes like a muscle, like anything else. If you do, the more you use it, the more you'll develop it. I would also say that um, it's important to, find people's work that you really respect 
and that could be the the masters that I alluded to before. You know, your Henry Cartier Bressons or your you know, Sally Maiman, uh, any anybody, and just if, if there's a particular style or something, I guess you just got to break down what it is that you love about that and then set that as some kind of benchmark. You're not copying it because you can't copy it because, but you've, in history of art is always based, you know, you're always coming in on the shoulders of something. So I think that's that's an important thing and just keep reevaluating. I think it's good. It's important to keep taking time out to reassess, step back, have a look, not just at your photography, but your life. So you can kind of go, hang on, well, what just happened? I'm now over here and I don't necessarily like this road that I'm on. It kind of goes back to what you mentioned before about just, yeah. you know, you'll just head on down a track right. without even thinking, just like a train on the railroad. So you've got to get, you've got to stop every now and then and get out in front of the train and relay some different tracks so you can head into a different direction. And I think it's much more interesting when you get out in front of the train and you switch stuff up and you get into other things. Um, I also think it's really important too. I like how you mentioned a lot of things you have to do in life. It's the most important thing is taking the first step and just kind of getting out there and starting photography. And like you said, using a muscle, it's just really important to get out there and just keep trying. And even if you're failing and you're not succeeding at first, just keep using the muscle and developing it over time. And it's like anything, I guess if you keep working at it. And like we said earlier, things will fall into place. Yeah, it's yeah. You've just got to you've got to be driven. Yeah, you know that's that's something that you can't really teach. I think it's something that you either you'll find or, or you have. Um, but that's that's a really important piece of the puzzle for sure. And I like what you said earlier too about having an influence or someone to look up to. And I think right now we're re it's really underrated the music we have today. And I think it's a good comparison you see in hip-hop is a lot of people sample previous people's music. They use that inspiration from previous bands. Like, I know I'm a big A Tribe Called Quest fan, and they're large Beatles fans, and they sample their music to make something new and innovative and bigger than themselves. And I'm not necessarily saying that you have to copy photography before you, but I think it's really cool when someone takes a style or inspiration and turns it and takes, like you said, puts it on their shoulders and expands on it and turns it into something new and innovative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too, Sean, how has traveling impacted your worldview? Oh, well, you can't help but, um, you know, just take in culture of other countries. I think it's, um, it's really important. And, and that's the beauty of living in Australia as Australians. We generally go overseas for long periods of time because it, cost so much to to get anywhere so rather than just go one place it's like okay well let's save a bit more money and go for a year or, or something like that that's something that a lot of australians do and you're on a five-week vacation right now right could you talk a little bit about that yeah well this is um we had a friend get married in czech republic so uh, amanda decided well it was just smarter to get around the world ticket so we popped into london where we used to live and toured around there for a while um, over to the wedding and then from there to LA and hired a car and we've been driving from basically from, from there to Denver. Um, but I, I carry the camera with me the whole time and I'm documenting the trip. So this from portraits to landscapes to details to all sorts of stuff. So 
ultimately when I get back, I'll have another body of work that I can use to, you know, promote myself, whether it's a, it becomes an exhibition or, or something like that. So, um, and I can also use it as a tax deduction. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> <Smart>. <laughs> um, I know some people at like universities or just, you know, just some of my friends that like, don't really want to travel. They don't want to leave like their comfort place, like just being around people that, you know, think the same way as them, act the same way as them. Can you talk, can you like tell that, like pretend to talk to them and tell them how like traveling the world or just traveling out of your comfort zone has broadened your perspective? Yeah, I think firstly, um, yeah, it's, it just, it just, blows your mind like you you go to cultures and you go to countries that are thousands of years old and experience um that that sort of lifestyle um that history to touch a building that was built you know in 1066 or something like that that straight away it just it just broadens your mind so you're not living within the constraints of what you've known you know for the last, you know, for the first 20 years of your life. Um, it, it gives you, I think, just a greater confidence as well. I think knowledge can create confidence in a way that nothing else can. And to, and to travel, you just, be, you just feel like you've got something to talk about. So when you do go home, I mean, no one really, really wants to listen to you. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if they are talking about it, you've got something, you know, you've, you've had that experience. And I think that experience is, is the key. It's, it's really, um, yeah, and, and, and it's taking you out of your comfort zone and, and it's making you try different languages. And it's, it's, it's also giving you a newfound appreciation for what you do have at home which is really important. Yeah, I think the perspective part of it's incredible because like we said earlier, there's a path here where a lot of people in our education system go to high school, to college, then they go get a job and it they all kind of go in the same loop and if when you go other places you get a different perspective on how people grow up, how everything works there and you can bring that back and take bits and pieces and apply it to your own life, which is really cool. And of course, it's fun as well, which yeah. doesn't hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to talk about, I, you've been extremely successful, and I think this is often overlooked when people look at their lives. I think a lot of times we talk too much about having to deal with failure, and I know you've gone through a lot of that too as well, but I know you've won tons of awards, you've been the guest speaker at a lot of big conferences. How do you deal with success like that? Uh, I don't really see it, to be honest. I don't, I don't consider... Um, I don't consider myself as anything different, really. I mean, I just do what I do. Um, I, I, I work as hard as I can on what I produce. Um, I pride myself on, on my ability to do that. Awards and whatever kind of, you know, that's really not up to me. So I'm, I'm pretty level about it. I, I, you know, this job we did recently for the Palau Pledge, um, which is a pretty amazing, um, well, pretty amazing concept and project. Basically, the Pacific nation of Palau um, is being inundated with tourists 
especially the like the burgeoning middle class of China. You know, they've got so much money now. They're um, they're, they're taking their own planes to to Palau, and there's just amazingly pristine reefs and things like that. And there's no education, so they just go there and eat whatever seafood they find in the ocean. They tread all over the the, re the coral reefs and that they're just basically literally destroying the place and the locals are so polite that they, they won't stop it or they don't really understand how much damage is being done so um, these individuals from their engaged advertising agency who created the Palau Pledge which means when you come in stamped in your passport is a pledge that you sign and you're you promise to look after the place and it outlines all these different things. So this, I went over there for like 10 days and we did this photo, photography and, and some other guys shot a, a video. Um, and this is, this campaign scooped the pool around the world. It's won humanitarian awards. It's won this and that. There's actually stage twos coming up in July. So I'm going back to Palau again. But those sorts of things are pretty amazing. I don't, like I say, I don't, it looks good, I suppose, on your resume. I'm not sure how much credence it, it holds, um, but I just love doing the work. Yeah, that's super cool. I think it's tough for people sometimes when they win awards to not let it get to their ego, and they think they're the best ever, and keeping that humble approach really helps you stay one of the best, even though it's not you're not purposefully doing it, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess the flip side is if you're not winning awards, what happens then? Do you get depressed and, you know, upset and... So it's either way, you know, and, and awards, it's a, it's a lottery, yeah. the award system. I've been on, a, on judging um, panels before and it, it comes down to, you know, what you like best isn't necessarily what's going, what, what wins. It's just sort of this, a committee that kind of decides. So yeah, you can get lucky and, yeah, that, or not. That must be super hard because, you, like you said, everyone has their own individual eye. And, like, I mean, at that stage, everyone's probably so advanced in terms of technique. Yeah, exactly. And some people on the on the judging panel were a bit louder than others and, you know, they <laughs> might get their own way. Some Americans on the judging panel. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about before we move into rapid fire is sport culture and the U.S. versus sport culture in Australia. I know you're a very passionate Australian sports fan and, you come here, and I've taught you some about baseball, and bat we've watched the NBA Finals, Stanley Cup. What what comparisons would you make between those two? Oh, I think just because you guys have such a uh, like the, again, it comes to population. You've got such a huge population, and the 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 levels of professionalism, you know, are really amazing here. And that's something that I think Australian sports learned a lot from, especially in the last 10, 20 years. They send coaches out here to spend time with your coaches and bring back a lot of techniques. The sport in our countries uh, kind of become fully professional, like in a lot of cases. Um, I think you guys... Again, it's a population thing. You guys fill stadiums watching college games, which is pretty pretty unreal. We we can barely fill stadiums for the top, you know, say the NRL or something like yeah. that. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's 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 a huge difference. I, I love American sports, and I I just love how into it everybody gets. It's incredible. It's I don't. I guess the English Premier League and the Champions League are kind of like that, but 
there's nowhere else in the world where we have our own World Series and we're the only country that participates <laughs> in the sport or the World Championships. Hockey, it's a lot. That, of is, yeah. that is pretty funny, I must say. Australian, a lot of Australian sport is international. Uh-huh. So we do play other countries, you know, whether it's cricket or rugby union. Um, they're the main ones. We do have Australian rules football, which isn't played anywhere else. Um, but yeah, the old World Cup where you're the only country participating is pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. World champions. <laughs> yeah. Let's go, Blues. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, I think we're going to move into the rapid fire segment now, which sometimes do not have rapid fire answers. Um, Pablo, you want to start it off? Yeah. What's the best gift you've ever given someone? Oh, uh, life. Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be one of the best answers. We've I've, got, I've got three kids. Beautiful. Um,. What is the favorite picture you have ever taken? Well, I think it's possibly the portrait I did of a young young boy at a school um, who had wonderful freckles and buck teeth and glasses. Um, yeah, that's a portrait that I really like. Um, if you could have dinner with two people, dead or alive, who would they be? Wow. There's an Australian Prime Minister that just died, an ex-Prime Minister, Bob Hawke. He'd be, um, he's, he's pretty cool. He once held the record for sculling the most amount of beer um, <laughs> between England and Australia. Um, and he was a Rhodes Scholar and all that sort of stuff. So he'd be, he'd be pretty fun. Um, maybe, maybe with the Queen as well. Maybe we mix them up. That'd be an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh. Uh, I'm pretty happy with the way that it's gone. I'd say you probably won't want to use this, but don't smoke so much pot. (laughs) (laughs) I think Uh, some of our listeners could use that. (laughs) That advice pretty well. um, What's your favorite place to photograph? Uh, whatever's right in front of me. Beautiful. Well, I think that wraps up, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Pablo. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Reimagining Intent podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.reimaginingintent.com and check out our social media at Reimagining Intent. Thanks for listening.